0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free, more than 500 episodes and counting. There is also an official Other People app. That too is free. It's all free. Your support makes a difference. If you want to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in
0: common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. beautiful. Jeez, what a struggle, you know? Right. It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
1: And now here's your host, Brad Listy.
0: Just one oh, person, hey, just one time. Hi, right. hi. This <laughs> right. is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. Welcome to the podcast. You're inside the podcast. The podcast is. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say the podcast is inside of you, but that feels weird, especially at this particular moment in our cultural history. I'm really tired. I'm capable of making jokes like that in this in these circumstances. Got a demanding new day job. I'm not getting much sleep. I've been up since 3 a.m. You know what happened? I just got keyed up. I thought to myself, I got to get up. I got to be on. I got to get shit done. I got to go to my new job. And I just woke up, 3 a.m. I've been up ever since. It's now almost nine o'clock at night. There's a difference between me recording this show at night and me recording this show in the day. This is not to say that one is necessarily better than the other. I think in general, if you catch me in the day, I'm more likely to be sharp just because, you know, the, the demands of the day have not taken their toll on me. But I can have very productive interviews in the evening. And the interview that I'm about to share with you with Genevieve Hudson was recorded at night on a day when I was in a, in a state of mind similar to the one that I'm in right now. So it's all coming full circle It's dovetailing. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're in the middle of a dovetail right now. You're bearing witness to one. Genevieve Hudson uh, has published two books this year. The first is a a short book of of commentary called A Little in Love with Everyone. That's available from uh, Fiction Advocate, it's a book of queer commentary. The debut exploration of queerness, art, preservation, and the narrative threads of survival. Chloe Caldwell, a past guest on this program, says, This is the queer commentary book I needed as a teenager. And in my 20s and today, Genevieve Hudson is a bold and intelligent new voice. So that's book number one. The second book is a collection of stories out from future tense called Pretend We Live Here. Genevieve Hudson and I in conversation in just a second she came over she uh, has a very she's very charming She's is a, a young southerner who lives in Amsterdam she's from Alabama but she has spent the past few years in, Alabama, uh, in uh, Amsterdam she has a great smile she's an easy laugher which was useful uh, during our conversation just because I was so punchy my God, I think she thought I was nuts. But uh, just a delight to talk with, and uh, I'm very pleased to have her here on the show and to get to share that with you. I don't have much else. What can I tell you? I just feel like the news cycle, if you pay attention to it, is so unbelievable right now that it's uh, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. It's hard to keep up with. You sort of need like an oxygen mask at intervals just to like, reoxygenate takes a lot out of you. I was in Washington DC last week uh, on a business trip and I did get to poke around a little bit. I rode a bicycle. As uh, many of you who listen regularly know, I ride a bicycle uh, a lot. I ride around Los Angeles whenever I go travel. That's how I like to get around just because it, I don't know, it's just more uh, participatory or something. So I rented a bike and uh, at night when the uh, workday was done, I would get out and cruise around a little bit, and I just like like slow-rolled past the White House. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. I was just like, oh my God. That fucking lunatic is in there watching Sean Hannity, or whatever the hell he does. drinking like Pounding Diet Coke and poop tweeting. But uh, I did that, and then I did as like a, you know, a counterbalance. I went to the Lincoln Memorial, and I read... On the wall, you know, on the walls of the Lincoln Memorial, on one wall you have the Gettysburg Address, and on the other wall you have the uh, second inaugural. And I recommend reading both, it doesn't take long. But it served as a reminder of what it's like to have uh, a true leader, like a truly li- literate president. <laughs> That's, is that too much to ask, a literate president? And, you know, I was having a conversation in Washington, D.C., as one is wont to do, about uh, the, the president of the United States, and I was just like, has he ever read a book? Has Donald Trump ever read a book? Like, certainly not after the age of, uh, like, 20 or 25. I cannot imagine him reading a book. Sincerely. Like, that's not just, like, you know, my political bias talking. I don't think he's a reader at all. How could, he, how, how could he be and also behave the way that he does? You know what I'm saying? So, it's just kind of shocking, though, to, like, register that. There's so much to keep track of, you lose track of that. And I just recalled that, I think, after I read the Gettysburg Address. And thought about Abe Lincoln, who like barely had any schooling at all. Like, like read the Bible and like self-educated whatever he did. I don't know how he did it, but uh, just a wonderful writer. Like one of the best writers that America ever produced. I would, I would argue. Is there somebody out there with a hot take where it's like Lincoln was overrated? (laughs) Lincoln was actually terrible waiting for that what am I missing what do I not know about Abe Lincoln he's a piece of shit too is he okay nobody's good so uh, you know I'm doing well I'm just running pretty hard I'm worried am I getting a cold I don't know I'm in one of those places physically where it's like I think it could be a cold is it coming is it going can I recalibrate stay tuned
2: Malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan. To do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves.
0: All right. Okay. That's enough. (laughs) I'm going to start getting emotional. Uh, That was Daniel Day-Lewis delivering Lincoln's second inaugural address in the uh, movie Lincoln, for those of you who don't know. a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Genevieve Hudson is the guest. She has two books out. The first is called a little in love with everyone. It is a book of queer commentary. It is a book of personal reflection. It is a a bit of an homage to Alison Bechdel's Fun Home. Genevieve's writing about the impact that that book had on her and how it helped her to understand her uh, identity and so on. So A Little in Love with Everyone, that's available from Fiction Advocate. The second book is called Pretend We Live Here. It's a collection of stories available from Future Tense Books. It was so great to meet Genevieve Hudson, and it is uh, equally great to get an opportunity to introduce uh, her and her work to you on this program uh, right now here she is folks this is Genevieve Hudson
1: my mom was was liberal and she was a professor at the University of Alabama and she had you know this group of like fe- female friends that were you know really interesting different kinds of women and they were really models to me as I was growing up um, what did your mom teach she taught early childhood development okay yeah and um, And, but I always had the sense that, um, there was more, you know, I just, there was something about, you know, I had this feeling growing up there and I think some of this might've also come from hearing, you know, my mom's friends from an early age to talk about the problems with Tuscaloosa. So that kind of put a seed in my head too, but it just felt, um, you know, I, I could feel the smallness of it. And I read a lot, you know, as a child, as a way, I think, to get out. And I kept just having this feeling of, like, when is when is life going to, you know, begin in some way? <laughs> right. And I know that I'm not – that's not unique to me. I think that, you know, a lot of young people are bored in small cities in America and have this feeling. But, uh, yeah, there were a lot of – um there were the, the kind of country boy aesthetic, uh, was not appealing to me. Uh, the, you know, I,
0: or like the dudes in like polo shirts and yeah. Uh,
1: or there was a big kind of, you know, there was also like, I was saying this to somebody else here the other day, there was this, you know, kind of clothing that was popular and I was in high school called Confederate clothing. and. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you would see it and it had, you know, like these Dixie aphorisms or something on it. And a lot of people wore that. And hunting culture was something that I wasn't, you know, I really, I was a, became a vegetarian at a very young age. And I, you know, was like, Why? Um, I think it was a stance against where I was, oh, you know, you? in some way. Um, I think I was about 14. I remember we did a project in middle school where it was a debate and you had to take different sides of an issue and ours mine was factory farming Uh and i learned about it and was like i'm okay i want
0: to talk because i've been a vegetarian since i was like 21 yeah my wife became a vegetarian when she was like nine after watching like a you know factory farming chickens video was just like what the fuck yeah I read, I think the book, I read a book called Diet for a New America hmm. by John Robbins, who's like an heir to the Baskin Robbins fortune.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's like pictures and I was just like, what? Like once I read that book, I was like, okay, done. Like I'm not into this. Like, yeah, I, I, I don't understand. I don't understand how you can, like, I, I guess, like, I think most people know like, oh, factory farming is horrific and these animals are tortured and. They live like the like you can't even like unimaginable cruelty, right? Like their lives are are awful from the beginning to the end.
1: And it's it's a lot of cognitive dissonance because you know people love their pets deeply and have like deep relationships with you know animals that they keep in their house and that are parts of their family. And then you know they're serving other animals kind of with the same capacity for connection on their, their plates. And I really do think a lot of that is wrapped up in the same sort of like this cognitive dissonance is the same kind of cognitive uh, dissonance that we have with like a lot of things that are going on in our culture right now with like this exercise in, in empathy in a way too.
0: Yeah. Well, and just like, you know, pushing, I like, I think like, like I can sit down not because like my, like I consume, I'm not like perfect in my consumptions. Like sometimes I'll eat stuff that has like dairy in it. Right. And so I'm participating in that economy. Yeah. I have a leather belt. Right. So it's like some animal was slaughtered for that belt. So it's like, you know, it's really hard to bat a thousand. But uh, I think that the only way that I can sit down and like eat a steak is to just not be thinking at all. Like you can push it away.
1: Yeah, you can.
0: But if you have... And I think most people, that they're like, yeah, exactly. Don't think about it and enjoy the steak. Because steak tastes good to me.
1: Yeah. Bacon tastes yeah.
0: good. It's never been about taste. No. I always tell people, they're like, what, you don't love steak? And I'm like, oh, I do love it. But...
1: Or, or health, too. Because I think actually meat can be very healthy for you.
0: Depending on, like, your body type or your blood yes. situation. or
1: Yeah. And, you know, do you, uh, like, Ezra Klein, do you know who he is? He yeah. uh, He's, like, you know, from Vox Media. And I, he has some interesting. Wait. Uh,
0: oh, Vox, not yeah, Fox. Yeah. Not Fox.
1: Vox <laughs> with yeah. a V. Yeah. Um, and he has had some interesting people on his podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, where he talks, and he talks a lot about his veganism. And, um, how also there's this kind of, I I don't know what the theory is called, but it's this idea that like, if you subscribe to one tenant of something, you're more likely to subscribe to all of it. So like, oh, veganism is, you know, a, a morally correct way to live. Therefore, it's also the healthiest way to live. Therefore, it's also, you know, whatever, keep going. Yeah. And he was like, I don't think that's, that's not necessarily true. Right. It's not necessarily the healthiest way to live. It, it can be very healthy, but just because he, he believes that it's, you know, kind of a, a moral duty in a sense for him, you know, to not participate in that, it doesn't mean that it's everything great, you know, all the way down. No, no the and it's like you
0: can be a really unhealthy vegetarian yeah. if you eat like cereal and right. Mac, you know, like macaroni all day long, right. but like, uh, if you are smart about it and you do your reading and like, you make sure you're eating the foods that give you the nutrients that you need and you actually eat plants, right? you know, like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, like, and that's what you eat. You're going to feel pretty good unless you've got some like biochemistry that really needs meat. A lot of people tell me that they're like, I tried it, but like, I actually have to have meat cause I'm, you know, my blood case my red cell counter, you know, right? maybe that's true. Maybe it's true. I, I don't know. Like talk to your doctor, you know, like, yeah. but like some part of me is like, I think you just didn't want to do it. You know, like, I right. think you just wanted to eat steak. And you know what? I, I don't try to litigate it with people, but like, I do hope more and more people, like, even if you can't go completely meat free, like at least reduce, because not only are you reducing cruelty, you're reducing market demand for like, yeah. so these poor animals don't have to like live huddled in cages and like be brutalized and tortured and you know. Um, but there's also ecological consequences.
1: Mm, oh yeah, like
0: huge, mm. like climate change. Yeah, like uh, you know, uh, global warming is tied a lot to uh, you know clear cutting of forests so cattle you know can graze. And I know that there, are, right. I've read essays by people who like try to counterpoint that, but like I'm not buying it. Like like I think all of the groundwater pollution all of the chemicals that are pumped into these animals that then wind up in the soil and the groundwater mm-hmm. like and then all the trees that are cut so these animals can graze it's not good for the climate no
2: no and, and
0: so when you know just to your point about Ezra Klein and how he says like it's not you know it's not all good and you're not doing it because it's 100% all good i'm there with you on that and i feel the same way and I think part of my calculation in making the decision to be like 99% vegetarian or whatever is that it touches enough good bases. Yeah, that's in, what he would say too. In different areas, yeah. not just like oh animals. It's also like health. It's right. also like health of the planet. And God, I'm going to get on my soapbox here, but I think about this a lot. You know, Jonathan Gold and Anthony Bourdain both died this year. And I've talked, I think a little bit about this on the show because when they when they died, it gave me a reason to kind of pause and think about the work that they did. And I'm a fan. I was a huge fan of Bourdain. I have yeah. to confess, I did not read a ton of Jonathan Gold and I feel bad about it because I live in LA, Yeah, but like I, I did read a lot of his obits and tributes and I came away from it just like loving him and being like, wow, like awesome writer, great guy, like and And a fundamentally noble mission to use food as a way to like bridge the divide between cultures to get people curious and out exploring their city and interacting with people who might not they might not normally interact with like all of those things are awesome right and I, and then on top of that, like I just really liked Bourdain, you know like his like who he was on his t v show seemed like who he actually was, mm-hmm. and so I grieved uh, those losses, and I don't want to diminish their achievements or diminish like their goodness as people. But I do have the strong sense because another component or a strong component of both of their work was this like omnivorousness
1: mm-hmm.
0: and this almost like pride in mm-hmm. being like, I'll eat anything. Like, I'll
1: eat this lamb brain. Yeah. Like, give me the
0: brain. Yeah. Give me the guts. Give me the And I'm just like, ugh, like th- there's no, um, it's not like conscious consumption. Yeah. And it's not, it, it's almost like, pr- it's like this and it's, it feels very American to me. In a weird way, Mm. even though I guess they're cutting across cultures where, you know, but like, I guess the only point that I want to make is that I feel like we are headed towards a time, not out of some, well, I guess by necessity, I think eventually it's going to be by necessity once, you know, realities of our, of our ecological and climate situation really take hold is that we are going to have to have a next generation of celebrity food adventurers who tie into their exploration, like, uh, consumption consciousness or whatever, Mm -hmm. who, when they're out there exploring are like, well, what are the consequences of eating this? Like, that's not a lame thing to ask. And I felt like if you did ask it on Bourdain show, he would be like, fuck you. You know, I'm going to listen to Iggy pop and eat some, you know, do you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I I do know. know. I do know. I think it's yeah, I've never thought of it in that in that way. But it, it is interesting. I mean, I think maybe the counter argument to that could be that, you know, especially when he would go into, like, very remote areas, that these people are, like, eating, you know, what, like.
0: That's what they got.
1: Yeah, like right. What, what's right around them. Yeah. You know, and there's almost, like, nothing more sustainable than that in right. some That's way. Right. Yeah. You know, and I think that, but, it like, when you, if you were to then, like, you know, expand that to try to like, you know, uh, have every, everybody in America or everyone in a certain city eat like that, then you get into these problems, you know, and you still have maybe ethical problems about, you know, eating the suffering of another being and things like that. But from maybe a consumption point of view, some of these places, it's like, wow, this is how, you know, we are supposed to be eating based on where we geographically live and we can't really you know plug into the mass consumption of the world because we're not we're not getting our apples from australia even though we live in holland or whatever yeah. you
0: know yeah they don't get a... their
1: apples from australia they, but, that, but, but that's yeah. another that's another
0: component of conscious consumption <laughs> yeah. like i'm it's in, it, it, it hasn't and it, you know what I, i'm not perfect at it like i do buy produce that's been flown halfway around the right. world and burning all this fuel and you know that's a big fucking problem. Yeah. Like you can do a lot of good just by trying to eat locally and in season. What do you call it? locavore, or whatever they call it. Right. Anyway, it's like this stuff is so emotionally loaded. And as soon as you start talking about food, people tense up and get defensive and want to litigate. Yeah. And I guess that's what I'm doing here. But it's like, I think it matters to us all. And, uh, I just, I like the animals, like leave the fucking animals alone. They deserve a better life than this. What, who, who are We,
1: who are, I mean, that's a good question. Yeah. You know, that is a, I think that's like an interesting question to me. It's like, who are we to, dis, to decide the fate of, um, of other beings and other creatures? And I think that plays into sort of our ego as humans, because we feel that we have the right really to decide everything about this planet.
0: That well, we're on. but then I think some people would say, well, fuck it. Lions, they'll, they'll just attack a gazelle and fuck it up. But yeah. like the lion isn't conscious of its own death or like doesn't have the, I mean, right. Like it can't like, like human beings, like I, we have an extra responsibility. We have an understanding of suffering that, it, that exceeds that of other species, right? Like that's kind of how I rationalize it to myself. Cause it's like, I remember Benjamin Franklin, I think he toyed with vegetarianism, but then had some epiphany when he was on a boat and they like, they were gutting a fish and they opened it up there were like other little fish inside of it. And he was like, ah. Oh.
1: Well, it's, it's an interesting question because I think we've, you know, to me, because I actually do think there's some truth to that too, that, you know, but we're not, you know, living in the wild amongst these animals right now. Like we've created a completely. Speak for yourself.
0: <laughs> there's coyotes in my neighborhood.
1: That's, well,
0: <laughs> you can get killed.
1: <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Be careful. They <laughs> yeah. come out at night. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think it's, um, it's, we, we've created another society another kind of civilization where we actually don't need to like we're not going out on you know in into the woods with the bone arrow or or whatever hunter gather yeah you know we're... what and that,
0: that that's a more defensible like if there's not like uh like pre-agriculture humans like the hunter gatherer societies of however yeah. many millennia ago feels like fair game because you're eating everything you kill yeah. It's more in sync with the rhythms of nature. The population was smaller, food demand was different. I don't know. I I can and,
1: and in that way, to tie it back to the South, I do have to say that I I think I have more um understanding yeah. for people who hunt their own food than yeah. I do for people who go into a grocery store and get a cellophane 100%. wrapped you know, beef patty. Um, and that's another way that I think I've like grown a little bit since I've, you know, moved away from Alabama. I really left that place like with, with some hatred.
0: When did you leave? What age? 18. Okay. So 18.
1: But I don't have, I have less of it now, you know, like I feel like I've perspective in distance and, you know, this CBD oil. Yeah. Which is amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> but the, you know, there's more nuance to the yeah. story now. I can see it in a, in a different way with perspective. And I see, you know, it for, it's like interesting, it is like idiosync secrecy is now too. And the, ec- like, it's a very ex- ex- eccentric place, the South. And, um, it's also full of like a lot of sorrow and it's, it's, it's full of a lot of, um, of, uh, of interesting people. Sure. Yeah. It's a rich culture. Yeah. And that's come to me, I think more w- since I've left. But when I left, I was, I left, like I burned a line out of there.
0: There's also yeah. like a weird, like defense. Cause I think people bag on it. I think the accent people automatically assume you're, uh, you know, not, swinging for the fences intellectually or whatever it is, you know, like, so people can sometimes, and one of my favorite characters in life and in art is like the wily Southerner who's way smarter. Right. Like, did you ever listen to, um, S town podcast?
1: I did. I hesitate. I like resisted it for a while because I was like, oh, it's too close to home. I, I get this. Yeah. But. Uh, but yeah, then I did. He's an
0: example of that. He is. There's a lot of people like that. I know, I know. And I I love that because like, I think that like, I get why people would bristle at being underestimated just because of where they're from or what they sound like, anything like that. And, uh, I just like that, that kind of underdog story where it's like, that dude's actually twice as smart as you are. And, you know, nobody realizes it.
1: You know, it's an interesting thing because I think, you know, uh, being from the South, when people that aren't from the South kind of make these generalizations about it, I notice myself being like, oh, but you know, it's more complicated than that. And, you know, there's really, you know, interesting, smart people living there that are doing good work. But then when I go there, I'm like, oh, the stereotypes are true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, and, I kind of I think that the more true perspective is probably the one I have when I'm not as close to it and I can look at it and see it, you know, for, with its spots, but also for the interesting like compassionate smart parts, you know, things that are happening there. I don't you can't, know. You can't it's paint like with, any place.
0: Yeah, it is. And you can't paint with too broad of a brush. I think that there are like, you know, you can't paint with too broad of a brush, but there is such a thing as like broad cultural forces at work. There is such a thing as a majority. Oh, yeah. You know, and so uh, you know, Alabama is definitely a red state.
1: Oh yeah. I mean like there's like it's steeped in like toxic masculinity and uh, you know, there's like a lot of extremism and that that's true.
0: So yeah, but, yeah let's talk about gender and sexuality, which is a big part of your work. Yeah. And I'm sure it was like a big part of like uh, the anger yeah. that you left Alabama with yeah. as a kid. So like at what point in your life, did you start to grapple with that sort of stuff? Like what, when did you have like that awakening or that, uh, insight?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I was, a, I was quite a tomboy when I was growing up, which was socially accepted because you're a young, you know, a tomboy is a socially accepted way of being. Sure. But I, um, I hang, I hung on to that longer than was socially acceptable. And to my mom's credit, she let me, you know, dress from the boys section and, you know, keep kind of, presenting very masculinely
0: where was your your dad in the picture
1: um they were they got divorced when i was nine but yes he was in the picture and he
0: in tuscaloosa mm -hmm,
1: in tuscaloosa uh and he went along he went along with it too you have siblings i have a half sister and i have some step-siblings but i'm my mom's only child okay yeah and uh yeah so i um i was very much a tomboy And I, but at some point I started to realize that that was not, you know, my, that was not like really okay anymore, you know, from the, the pressures from outside, like I really started to feel like sort of normalizing forces. And I, there's also like, I had no, like, I think this is a big thing I think about is like, I had no, um, there were no narratives around me or examples of what it looked like to be queer, uh. The, the closest thing I really can remember. What does it mean to be
0: queer? Forgive me for like the totally idiotic question, but like I have some blind spots with yeah. like these labels and everything, and like what they actually entail. So is queer gay, or is gay different than queer? So
1: I think queer is a more uh, expansive definition for anybody who falls into the the umbrella of like lesbian, gay, bisexual, um, trans, and it just acknowledges and. This is not, you know, other people would have d- different definitions. I don't want to say that I have the only definition for this or that this should extend to everyone's, everyone's sort of way of living in that. Yeah. But um, it it kind of, it does work to, um, to kind of disrupt the binary way of thinking we have. So like, you know, when you say you're a lesbian, that's really acknowledging that you're like, I'm a woman-identified person who's only attracted to other women-identified people. But um, saying that you're queer has a little bit of like a political leverage there. And it also kind of just expands the definition. So maybe you're
0: attracted
1: to somebody. It's harder to to pin
0: down. It is. And that's kind of a good thing. That's
1: a good thing. Yeah. I think. But I also
0: feel like growing up, the word queer was kind of a pejorative, not necessarily from a gender or sexual um, angle, but more just like, or just like you're queer. I guess maybe it was kind of like sexual, but it was a...
1: it's like you're off, you're different in a bad way. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh-huh.
1: You're yeah. like a weird... Uh, and
0: like... then it was reclaimed. Yeah. And then now it's... I, I don't feel like it's as... I don't feel like that usage is as prevalent anymore. I don't feel it around. I feel like it's... Like the reclamation has overtaken right. the pejorative. Yeah. Not that the pejorative is gone entirely, but you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, it's true. I think that um, the movement's done a pretty good job with that, actually, Cause I think you're right. I don't really think that it exists any much anymore is just absurdo.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. okay. So you're going through like, uh, like I didn't I, have
1: the words for that also either. I wasn't like, Oh, I'm a queer child, you know? And yeah. I, I just felt as though like I wanted to dress like a boy. I felt boyish. I had, you know, these intense connections with, um, with girls, but also, you know, kind of, kind of had crushed on boys too. And, so there was kind of like just confusion around that and I had no – I just had no examples for what it would look like to, you know, be uh, – you know, to be empowered also in, you know, looking more androgynous or, you know, not looking feminine and growing up in – in that world there. Yeah. It was embarrassing. You know, was- at what
0: age did it become embarrassing? I asked this as a, like my son is, uh, you know, is disabled and has some health challenges and like, he's three right now. And I was just thinking today, I was like, this is such a golden age in some ways. Cause he has no idea. Right. And I, my heart breaks thinking about the day when he'll start to realize or like have to face like those kinds of like feelings of like, Oh, you know, I'm different or well, what, you know, what age did you start to feel well, how much I mean, time do I have?
1: <laughs> yeah, how old is your son? Three. Yeah, you know, I um, I think for me, I I continued to to present uh, as you know a very boyish person until I was maybe like fourteen or something. And well, that's good. Kind Got of, kind of like eleven years. <laughs> but I do remember. I remember pretty vividly. Maybe I was seven or something. And I remember my I was my neighbor was a, a boy that was a little younger than me, and I remember his. Dad looked, you know, talking to me in the yard and looking at me, and I had these kind of scabby legs from running around creeks, and they were all like riddled with mosquito bites. And he said, God, your legs look just like a boy's legs. And something about that really lay, you know, it just landed. And I remember thinking, oh, they shouldn't, they shouldn't look like that. You know, there was this implicit yeah. thing there. And, um, I just, I just remembered that. uh Um, and I, you know, I was really into skate culture too. And I was a skater and I hung out with all these guys. And I think that when people kind of started to get out of like, um, skating being everything we ever did, which was like 14 or 15 that I just kind of was like, okay, I, I guess I'm, I need to be like a, a, you know, be, be girly or be more like, more of a, did you do that? I did for went, a while. It's kind like, of come full you circle. Full <laughs> did you no, a... I didn't. Oh, I okay. didn't go full, but I did kind of embrace more of a feminine side for a while. Long hair, long hair, really long hair. Makeup? Uh huh. The whole thing? Yeah.
0: Okay. Do uh-huh. you have a boyfriend in high school?
1: I did. Yeah. Okay. Uh huh.
0: And then, then you got out of there and went to Portland. Is that what happened or?
1: No, actually then I went to Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston. Which I, felt like I was, go- to me at the time, it yeah. felt like I was going to, you know, the big city on the yeah, East Coast. Of course, yeah.
0: It's I, like, I've never been. I want to go. I've heard nothing but good things. My cousin from Alabama, Yeah. we we, we even have like a joke about it because she's like, I love Charleston. And she's like, I'm just going to go to Charleston, y'all. <laughs>
2: That's
1: <laughs> so, pretty good. Yeah.
0: It's become this thing where I'm always like, are you going to Charleston? Yeah. You know? Charleston. So I'm going to her uh, wedding in November.
1: In Charleston?
0: No. In Florida. Oh. But not Floribama, Ooh. not to be confused with Floribama. Yeah, don't uh, confuse them. Yeah, did you did you ever do Floribama as a kid?
1: Oh, that was where Spring Break was.
0: You went to Floribama?
1: Yeah. Well, it was, um, Destin. I went is, to Destin. Yeah.
0: I got a fucking awful sunburn in Destin.
1: Oh, me too.
0: My sister. The worst
1: of my life. Me too. Yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure I'll have shoulder cancer because. Me too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like blisters. Yeah. That because we were like we got rained on the first two days. Like we drove down in a minivan from Indiana. First time I ever saw the ocean, I was 12 years old.
2: Really? Yeah.
0: And I was like, all I wanted to do was be on the beach. I had this like, you know, it's like, oh my God, we're going to go see the fucking ocean. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'd seen it like when I was really young, but like I, I was like two. And then I also had been down to like the Gulf and like Louisiana. I don't know. It wasn't the same. No, no beach. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like that. So the first two days rain. We're in the condo. We're fucking stir crazy. We've been in a van for, you know, two days driving there and we're fighting and my mom and dad are finally like, we're going to go rent a VCR. Cause that's what you did in those days. Like back in the old days, I'm old. <laughs> so we drive to this place that rents VCRs and you can also rent movies and we pull up driving rain. You know, Southern range, cats and dogs.
1: I love that rain.
0: And my mom goes, I'm going to go in and we're fighting in the car. You know what I'm saying? Everyone's pissed off. My mom's like, I'm going to go in and get the VCR. You guys stay here. And my older sister, who was sitting to my right, was like, I'm going with you. And then like, I was like, I'm going to come too. And she got out of the minivan, but she didn't hear me because the rain was so loud. So like as I, as you can imagine, like getting out of a minivan, I was like my head was down and I was like, you know, kind of crouching to get out, and she didn't look and just sh- she slid the sliding van door, and it clipped me in the head, like it, at full speed, knocked me out cold. Oh. And like the next thing I knew, I was like waking up on the sidewalk outside of this VCR store. My mom's like thinking I'm like brain damaged, but I shook it off. And then the next day. <laughs> As if this wasn't bad enough, the next day we wake up and it's like bluebird, perfect sunshine. Oh my god, Glory. And we just like ran out to the beach and my fucking parents didn't put sunscreen on us out there for like 10 hours, just baking. Oh my god! And then it was just like big, huge blisters, misery for the rest of the week. That's That's a
1: bad way to start your first beach trip.
0: I'm not made for the beach. You have good skin. You got like you can tan. I do. Yeah. I'm like a freck I'm just made it's for
1: the Puerto Rican in me.
0: Is that what you have? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's good. So what Puerto Rican and what?
1: Uh there's actually some Dutch in there.
0: Oh. What a good combo.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm like Scots Irish and <laughs> some pale version of Sicilian. <laughs> it's just a freckly, like, you know, it's not good but uh, I'm always envious of people who have really good skin cause I got like sun damage when I was like in Colorado and still not wearing sunscreen and yeah. foolish, foolish.
1: I know it'll probably catch up to me at some point.
0: No, but you know, you have the right, you have the right pigment. I mean, you still got to take care of yourself, but
1: yeah, I have to remember that though. Cause I think it's easy when you have that, you know, that pigment to just be like, Ugh,
0: don't I'm fine. It. I'm yeah. fine. So here's a question before. I don't want to go too deep into skincare, but like, <laughs> At what time of day is like? Do you have to start putting? Because I hate wearing sunscreen. Like... I've
1: heard. I I'm not the right person to ask about this because I really neglect sunscreen usage, and I've just now started thinking this is something I should start doing. But I've heard that 20 minutes, like not at peak hours. So peak hours are between 10 and 2. Uh huh. <clears throat> but that 20 minutes without sunscreen is really good for you. Okay. You, know, you get the the vitamin D in. Yeah. It's good for your for everything. And then you should put the sunscreen on
0: 20 minutes. Yeah. Cause like in my head, I mean, I I know don't go outside for like two hours. Right. In peak sun with nothing protecting you. Yeah. But we're fucking animals on the earth. The sun warms the earth. Like, like I hate this idea that I'm supposed to be scared of the sun. Yeah. Like what kind of life is this?
1: That this is one of the reasons that I'm really uh, into LA right now is because I'm remembering how much I love the sun.
0: It's nice. It's it's not so bad, especially because I, if you grew up in winters, you know, like, you know, some people love the winter and they love the seasons and I guess I don't. I, I do
1: think there's one thing that, you know, coming, coming from the South, which was very bright and sunny all the time, now living the past decade in dreary climates, there's something that can seem a little relentless about, um
0: constant sun.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's a little too much for me after a while. I'm like, okay, I get it.
0: Yeah. Well, it's also like, like the same tableau. Like you're just like, it doesn't, I mean, the thing about it though, is there is a subtlety. There are seasons here. Mm -hmm. Like we do actually, it does actually get much colder than it is now. Mm Mm-hmm and there are leaves that change like like it's just really subtle like it's not the same kind of thing where like in the midwest where it's like oh we're raking the leaves and we're gonna go to the apple orchard you know i did i did that as a kid and then in the winter you're like scraping your windshield and doing the snowblower and like we did all that but um there's a winter here there's like you know it's desert winter though and then there's Mm. the really hot summer and we even have a spring, like wildflowers bloom if, if we have some kind of rainy season, which we've been lucky to have the last two years. Yeah. So you get to like sort of know it, but it's, it's not the same. Um, but it's nice and like the depths of like February and you're just like, it's gorgeous. Oh my gosh. So you can come visit if it gets oppressive wherever you are. You're going to move back to Portland?
1: I'm thinking about it. I'm not sure.
0: How long have you been over in the states just for this tour? Or like, what's?
1: Yeah, I'm here. I I just arrived, so I'm here for for this, for this reading tour, and then I'm gonna hang around and teach a a fiction writing class in portland
0: okay so you're here for a little bit
1: yeah i am
0: is this part of your like dutch like holiday thing or no
1: Uh, no this is i'm extending the dutch holiday you are okay yeah yeah so a little test test run but do you have
0: a job that you can go back to or did you just quit
1: um well i'm i do freelance copywriting work so i'm working for a few clients remotely while i'm here which is really nice that's not so bad yeah and i can kind of like really buckle down when i'm in amsterdam and work really hard and then take time which is really nice
0: so you have two books coming out. Like you're dropping two?
1: Yeah, the first one is, is a small book that's part of a series. Um, the series is called Afterwards, and it's by this really cool press called Fiction Advocate. And they're doing this. Uh, so Afterwards is a series of books about other books. Um, so the guy who started it, Brian Hurley, he's was the books editor for The Rumpus for a long time, and I had written some book reviews for him. And it's basically this kind of like extended book review idea where you, writers can take it in any direction they want. Um, so it's like, what's a book that you love? A book that's, you know, really influenced culture in the last 20 years. And, uh, you know, just write, write about that. Put yourself in it if you want. You know, bring it out to larger, larger cultural moments. Um, and I wrote about Alison Bechtel's Fun Home and about growing up queer in the Deep South. Uh, which we touched on a little bit. Um, yeah, and then Pretend We Live Here is the, my other book, and that's a collection of short stories.
0: Wow. And, and were you working at these? This is all done in Amsterdam?
1: Mm hmm. I wrote both of those in Amsterdam.
0: And did you, I mean, is it something like that uh, you had to really wrestle with, or was it a fairly, you just got up, you did it? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, some people. Mm-hmm have like a Herculean struggle with writing. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
0: are you that kind of person or is it something that comes fairly easily to you?
1: Um, I, I'm i not one of these writers that can go into a room and lose themselves in the work type, you know, for eight hours and come out with 10,000 words or something. You know, I, I have a friend who very much works like that. And for me, it um, it's about routine and getting, you know, Getting up, I, I'm I work better in the morning, so I'm really a morning person. That's when I have the clearest thoughts, kind of everything. The day doesn't seem you know it feels really um like there's just potential. Nothing's gone wrong yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So right. I think I can I can wake up <laughs> and I just kind of try to stay in this dream world for as long as I can and I write
0: What time do you get up?
1: Um, six.
0: Okay. Yeah. Have like a cup of Dutch coffee. Yeah, oh, that's good so coffee. Do you live on like a canal? Is it the whole thing? Is it the um, is it the I Amsterdam? Live, I
1: live very close to a canal, but in, not on.
0: it. In one of those like narrow houses.
1: Um, no, it's in a net. It, it's it's in a different. It's a different style of architecture there called uh, the Amsterdam Siskol. So it used to be. Uh, it was like a long time ago. It was it was built for working class families, but it was built very beautifully because the Dutch believed that working, the working class should have art and beautiful things because that is part of what makes a good life and that that would, you know, help inspire people to take care of things and, you know. I'm going to
0: start crying.
1: <laughs>
0: it's revolutionary.
1: So it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. There are these like gorgeous French doors with like old glasswork and yeah, really nice.
0: Good God. Yeah. Maybe you should stay there. I know. Maybe I should stay. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. That's so nice. And plus, like, just the access. You have access to all these different cultures at such, like, close geographic proximity.
1: Oh, yeah. It's it's amazing. I mean, I will always be connected to that culture and that space. You know, especially I have Dutch family
0: that lives there, too. Do you know them? I do know them. You do? Yeah. So you go say hi? and.
1: Yeah, I'm really really close with them.
0: So what's it like? Where do you get the Puerto Rican from, and where do you get the Dutch from?
1: Both from my mom. Okay. So my mom is half Puerto Rican and half Dutch. Wow. Yeah. And she uh, was born in Venezuela and then moved to the States when she was. How do you, yeah. she's
0: from Puerto, she's Puerto Rican, but she's Venezuelan, but she's Dutch.
1: Uh, so she, her dad was Dutch. Her mom was Puerto Rican and they met in Venezuela. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Damn. I know. That's cool. Yeah. Moved to Tuscaloosa.
1: <laughs> yeah. She didn't move there until later in her life. But. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's your dad? What's his, like? can see
1: Uh, he's, a. He's just Alabamian.
0: Scots-Irish, probably. Yeah. He's like me. Yeah. Good thing you didn't get the freckles and the <laughs> sun damage. Um, so, okay. So you've written these two books. You wrote a story collection. Are you working on anything else?
1: I am. I'm working on a novel that um, is set in Alabama.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. you got to write the Alabama novel.
1: Yeah. it's And it's really... Um, it's a, you know, it's really about, it's about somebody who moves from, uh, Germany to Alabama as like a young in high school. Uh-huh. Um, and he, which is, which is kind of common cause there's a Mercedes Benz plant outside of Tuscaloosa. Right. So they draw in some Germans and he comes and he's kind of confronted with this. I really amp up kind of the, the strangeness and there's a little bit of magic realism in it, but he's re- confronted with this world of Alabama football and toxic masculinity. And you a this... fan of
0: you a fan of the Crimson Tide? No, I'm
1: no, not. Mix no. Saban? I mean, I know way more about it than I. you. Know, I, you it's in. It's in my blood. Sure. I just I know so much about Alabama football. It's religion.
0: Football. That's it the is. real church of the South.
1: Yeah, it's true. And yeah. that's kind of what I. What the, you know, this book is a little bit about. Is a little bit about that and kind of like the strangeness and the normalized kind of. The normalized strangeness that abounds in the South and kind of coming you know seeing that from an outsider's perspective
0: you should read uh Steve Allman's book against football, or at least listen to- I
1: have read uh some of that book
0: because they just because it speaks to southern football culture football culture in general, but like I think there are parts of it where he addresses the South in particular and there's like a, you know the racial aspects of football fandom and yeah, made it make sense to me in in a way that was uh like clarifying and upsetting. I love know. the way he thinks. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He's, he's a, he's a really, uh, brilliant thinker.
0: I think so too. Yeah. He can take like, he can take these big, huge, like tangles yeah. and like break them down yeah. like, so lucidly. And you're just like, thank you. <laughs> he really
1: can. Yeah. Um, yeah, I should read that. I've read uh, bits of it. I actually read bits of it as I was writing this book.
0: I was going to say, cause it could, yeah. that's why I was recommending it. I was like, wow, that would probably be something that would speak to you. Going back to what we were talking about way early about like reading these things that are nonfiction or seemingly unrelated and having them feed you, you know, and get you writing fiction. But what do you, is this it? Like, do you want to, like, do you have a goal? Like, I want to be a fiction writer, make my living selling books, or do you feel, because like you sort of got off the academic track. Mm -hmm. You're like, I was maybe going to get a PhD and then you're like, no, I'm going to move to Amsterdam and, you know, live here for five years, which by the way, I think that's a cool decision. Yeah. There's courage in that decision. And it it also like the experiences that you've had, just living abroad, doing all that traveling, especially as a young person. Um, are you still in your twenties? No, you're not. You look like you are, (laughs) um, but you're young Yeah, and you had that, that do not feel like it. Whenever I speak to somebody who's like, you know, mid twenties, thirties, and they're like, what should I do? Not that people come to me asking me all that often, but sometimes (laughs) I'm always like, go travel. Yeah. You can't get back those years when you're young and you're relatively untethered and you have all that energy and you can bounce around, like go do it. And you did it. And so I'm envious.
1: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Maybe you should keep going. Maybe I should. (laughs) I guess you could. I mean, you know, like once, I think once you've, you've been able to do it before, it makes it seem possible.
1: I don't want to give up that part of my life. You know, I think that I do, um, I, I, I'm very much a person of routine. I really need routine to stay focused and to create and be productive, but I need, um, variation too. Yeah. So I think, you know, one thing that's really works for me is to have, you know, large swaths of time where I'm just like really focused and really immersed in routine and then to just kind of cut loose. Yeah.
0: But you got to kind of, but this is the thing, like, um, I just talked about this with Maggie Nelson, like discipline, like the relationship between discipline and freedom and how actually like being like scheduled and organized and having a routine actually makes you more free. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Um, or like, and I think we it was even like, like, you can can even work in like a sobriety context Mm -hmm. where you think somehow like having this restrictive lifestyle is going to be somehow uh, confining when the truth is that it's liberating. Mm-hmm. You're actually imprisoned by this like notion of like debauchery and f- complete freedom. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. there's, it's like, it, it's uh counterintuitive, but mm-hmm. I think that that's the case. Um, and so I totally get having to have a routine and a schedule, especially around writing life, but just around life in general to keep you sane. But I also get needing that time to be untethered, mm-hmm. but you have to plan it.
1: Yeah. Like mm-hmm. you sort of have
0: to like, even that takes some discipline because yeah. you have to be able, to, like, I'm going to stop. I'm going to take some time, and then I'm going to kind of enforce this period of freedom on myself.
1: Well, you know, coming going back to our conversation when I told you that I like uh, picked this, picked up this David Lynch book uh, in the bookstore and then kind of blew through it. One thing that oh, he... we were talking
0: about this before in the kitchen. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, what's the name of the book? Catching the Big Fish. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Um, he also, you know, he talks of he's talking about routine and, you know, transcendental meditation and, you know, this this idea that some people have that, you know, the artist has to be suffering or, you know, the creator has to, you know, be suffering or dealing with sadness or depression in order to create. And, you know, as many people know, that's, that's not the case. And it's actually, you know, he's saying too that it's detrimental to to the work that, you know, stories can be full of sorrow and, uh, and, and sadness and take, you know, to the, to these depths. But if you, as someone who's creating are feeling, these things, it's actually like very confining.
0: That's my problem, you know? Yeah.
1: And it's really limiting. Oh God. And, um, that's, that's kind of what routine can do to me. Or like when I'm on a structure, when my life's a little bit quieter is it allows me to think more clearly and, uh, really do work. And if I'm too scattered or I'm too distracted or I'm feeling these like highs and lows of, of things, then it's not good. It's not good for my creative process.
0: Yeah. That yeah. makes sense to me. Yeah. And like, you know, like, it, like any kind of like se- any semblance of stillness, so hard to come by.
1: Cause you, you meditate, right? Yeah. 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 And
0: like, I, like the, the place that I've come to with it is that it's no different to me than brushing my teeth.
1: Hmm.
0: Like it feels like a kind of hygiene. Hmm. It's like, to me, it's a hygiene issue. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I, what was I talking about? I think I've argued pretty like vociferously on this show about like how like, if you're, if you're not flossing, like you're bad, <laughs> you're a despicable <laughs> human, but I mean, it's like, like take care of yourself. Oh, and I've also argued that uh, men should get, like, quarterly pedicures. Like, take care of your feet. And, like, these people who are like, oh, it's so foo-foo and, like, bougie. And it's like, no. Like, you're these things are in shoes and you're on them all the time. Like, why? Because we take showers. We clean our hands. We clean, like... But our feet, for some reason, it's like, no, don't touch them.
1: They're neglected.
0: It's disgusting. Take yeah. care of your feet. You know, yeah. like, they're they're gross. And like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I advocate that it's completely fine. And so I think um, I've come to that place where, like, I've done enough meditation where if I don't do it, I notice it's sort of like, if you don't brush your teeth, you're like, ugh. Right. It feels like that to me. Yeah. And uh, I, I love it. I think that, uh, and I need it, too, because... I don't take SSRIs. I don't go to therapy, mm-hmm. you know, not that either of those things is bad. It's just like, I don't, you know, I don't have, I've never met a therapist. I should, I would love to find one who's like really good and like, sort of like Robin Williams and Goodwill hunting. And you know what I'm saying? Like that, I would love to have a therapist relationship like that, but
1: I I have not found a therapist that I feel like I connect with on that level either. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, even though I i think therapy is a really great thing.
0: Yeah, and like what a luxury too, because yeah. it's expensive, you know, and not I guess the Netherlands it's not, covered.
1: No.
0: <laughs> Don't come back. Don't come back. Find yourself a nice Dutch therapist. But yeah, so, you know, I, I I know that I um I know what I'm like when I stop doing it. It's like trial and error, you know. I I tested the waters uh as a young person, like 20, 19, 20. I would do it for a while. Meditate. Yeah. yeah. And then I would like, sort of like, and it usually would coincide with like a low period. Like I'd be feeling depressed or, you know, struggling with something. And I'd be like, okay, I'm going to meditate. And it would, I would start to like feel a little bit better. And then it wasn't just because of meditation. It's just the, the nature of life. Like you go through these low periods and then things change.
2: right?
0: <laughs> your mood changes, the circumstances of your life change. And then I would come out of it. And then of course, like as soon as things started to improve, I'd be like, oh, and like, you sort of forget about the meditation right. and then things go back. And then I would like notice this pattern. And then I think over time, uh, came to realize that for me, it's foundational and it becomes like, like David Lynch hasn't missed a meditation in like 50 years. Yeah, and I think like I totally kind of, I kind of get that like you get to a point where it becomes a superstition almost where you're like, you know what I don't want to rock the boat on this like this is it like this is my routine this is my ritual this is how I take care of myself like I, I see no reason to not do it and I'm
1: and you do it tw- do you do it twenty minutes twice a day
0: I try to wow but I sometimes sit I mean I can sit for way longer wow because I ha- like sometimes it's hard for me especially in the evening to like quiet down at all
1: and you don't you I mean. I'm sure you don't, because <laughs> you're a real meditator. But you don't use an app or anything. You just I sit. use a,
0: a timer. Okay. Like a bell, and You'll then go set
1: it for 20 minutes.
0: I set it for 20 minutes, and then like I have like interval bells that go off at five, ten, and fifteen, mm. and they they they're just like reminder bells. It's like one tone, because like you know I'll be sitting there planning my day or like having okay. an argument in my head or all the shit that people do, and then those interval bells like bring me back in, right? And like every time I hear one, I say to myself, I listen, I listen. This wonderful sound brings me back to my true home, which is Thich Nhat Hanh. Oh yeah. So he gives like, I use hit, like he's my main teacher in the sense that like I've read his books and learned the most directly from him. And so like there's little mantras that he teaches Then I just use those. Yeah. And it's like, inhale, exhale, flower, fresh, calm, (laughs) ease, um, blue sky free here now. Inhale, exhale, flower. And like, there's actually longer sentences attached to each one. But like, as you get more and more quiet, you just reduce it to one word. Wow! And then on those interval bells, I chant that. But then, I've been reading lately, um, you know, more deeply about Zen, and there's like all these different methodologies. You can count the breath: one, inhale, one, exhale, one. Or you just, or you just count on the exhale only, or the inhale only. Mm-hmm. And if you fuck it up or you lose your train of thought, you start over which is really humbling. Cause like, you'd be surprised, right? Like you can't even count to 10, you know? Wow. And like, you're off on a tangent and like, it can become frustrating, but of course they're like, don't get frustrated. Yeah. It's don't be attached. Just gently bring, be kind to yourself and just start over again. And right. But it shows you your mind, you know, how shameless it is. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, you know, I can talk about meditation all day long, but you've dabbled or do you do it or
1: yeah, I have I have dabbled. I've had a strong yoga practice for a long time. Me too. And um that's really that feels also like hy- hygiene to me. But I um and so I've dabbled in meditation. It's a really hard thing for me.
0: Okay. So let me tell you like just my experience cuz I'm the same, you know. I think I'm Can I just ask you how old you are you? 30 years old?
1: I'm 32.
0: 32. Okay. So I started to tell you about how, when I was younger and I would go through these periods, like I would sit and then I would lose the track because Mm -hmm. I would start to feel better. And then I would get sad again or have some shitty thing happen. I'd go back to it. And then I also had a bad back, um, bad low back. And a chiropractor was like, you should try yoga. I also went to college in Boulder. So it was like, it was in the water. Right. But I started doing yoga in college. Uh, A friend of mine committed suicide in college so okay. that, yeah. So that was also like a big impetus. Like everything was like shattered when I was a sophomore, junior year of college. And so like, I got very, I turned very inward right, uh, and started to like on my own, like it wasn't like in concert with any of my friends. I don't think any of my friends even really knew I was doing this, but like I was going out to this ashram and El Dorado Canyon. And it was like me and like all these like 50 year old people, like right. 60 year old people. And like, there's goats and shit and I meditate. I had no idea, but I needed to do something. Yeah. And I had started to read and I like got into the Dalai Lama and I had a free Tibet bumper sticker. And you <laughs> know, like it was like this <laughs> fertile period of like really annoying behavior, but well-intentioned. <laughs> uh, and so what I did not tell you is that, you know, after this, these early twenties years of being like sitting, not sitting, sitting, not sitting, but still reading and, you know, dabbling. I started to go to yoga more and more frequently. And then when I was about 23, 24, I got really into it. And I think it was cause I was like living at home with my parents. Mm-hmm. I was kind of in those post college, like floating years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I also was having back pain and then, you know, it's sort of like pot without the paranoia. Mm-hmm. If you do a yoga class, like you get high. You do <laughs> in a, in a beautiful way, like a like that clarity and that mm-hmm. dopamine or whatever it is. Like however I'm wired. Like every day, you do a practice and you come out of it, and you're just like, okay, I want some of this every day. Like yeah. this is making me feel really good in a way that doesn't feel like there's any cost. Like mm-hmm. yeah, it's like financial cost, but there's no cost like the way that like, if you get high, you know, you might have a hangover or, right. And so I always have to sort of cop to this is that I regret the extent to which I abused drugs and alcohol as a young person. Not that I ever had like a super crazy, like I never went like super crazy, but I had like, you know, the normal like 1920 year old excesses. Um, I don't know how normal they are, but you know what I'm saying? Like a normal time to do those things. But what they made me really conscious of is like what makes me feel good. Right. And I think too, like my orientation with those sorts of things, maybe more so than my friends or my peers or whatever, was that I really was using them and interested in um, my spirit and like being happy
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and like learning and grow. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what I was like, really like, wow, I feel high. I'm like that. You take like, you smoke pot or you take ecstasy or something. And it's like, you know, it was like, it was like pointing towards something that like I was really interested in,
1: but then it's false because and then you can't, yeah you can't keep it. And
0: there's also that cost. Yeah. Then the next day you're like, wow, I feel so sad. You know, yeah. I'm so hung over and like, I got the flu and it's like, you know, I think I, once I figured that out, I was like, okay, so this isn't what it is, you know? And yeah. I wanted to know. And so that's been kind of, uh, I mean, that's a really short version, but that's like, that's what set you on the path. And so in a way I'm grateful to those experiences. Like all of those hangovers eventually were like, that was all the evidence I was gathering that I was totally fucking wrong <laughs> or that it, like, you know, But you,
1: got there, you I know? got there. Yeah.
0: At least it didn't take me like a decade and a half or something, you know, right. uh, it was pretty quick, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but is that, was that the case for you? I mean, is that how, like, like what, how did you get into the yoga?
1: You know, I think I've, and I don't know if some people are just more, um, inclined to be seeking or searching for something than others or, or what that is, but, or if some of it's from, you know, Alabama growing up because I, you know, religion, I went to Catholic school Uh growing up and, um, I was really interested in what like what else was beyond what we could know
0: did you connect to your catholicism as a, as a child was there mm-hmm. a time when you like were earnest about it? it
1: to an extent i mean it got really got to me in like the fear the fear stuff and I'm, guilt me
0: too i was raised catholic so. yeah
1: but i did have a moment in my late teens where i um you know was uh really dabbled in christianity Where I, you know, had kind of these very, you know, charming, charismatic, wonderful people, you know, who like loved the outdoors and had these fun adventures, you know, came in and were very devoted to living a life about Jesus. And I was, you know, I was interested in this other thing that they seemed to have this like connection to like, like a divine mysticism was very intriguing to me. and you know, and I think that that either, that same kind of sense of intrigue continued on where I was like, you know, this, like Christianity, that's, I can't buy that in its full form, you know, like I just can't, but I do have this part that was like seeking something, not necessarily in a God form, but that's like beyond me, you know, or something that I, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that I, makes okay. Sense.
0: Yeah, it makes like a hundred percent sense, and I uh,
1: also I have like very much like my mind is just full velocity, and there's something that's like I want it. I also kind of that that pair like that. In addition to it, I was like, how do I reach this this state of I don't know, like, a, like, a, how do I like get some sort of like calmness added into the mix there? And these people that were that I could that I saw that were religious, they had some of this. Sure, you know. Sure, yeah. And I think a lot of people from different religious practices, they have some sort of um, sense of of ease or reflection, not, I mean, not everybody, but I, I just think like certain, you know, people who I think are really like tapping into something. They have a deep faith. Yeah.
0: And it's like, there's a million different paths to the mountaintop.
1: Yes. Yeah. And
0: so to have a path is a great comfort. And that doesn't mean like to have a savior. Right. But I think it's just like it's something that makes sense to you. Some way of life, some tr- wisdom, tradition, some yeah. moral structure. I get, I get it. Yeah. You know? And I also like when you say, is that normal to be thinking of those things and like being interested in divine mysticism to me, what you're saying is like, you're, but 19 years old or 18 years old or however old you were yeah. at this period in your life, very normal time to be Right. like, that's, you know, there's a reason why, uh, I don't know. It, like it's a very, um, I'm thinking of war right now like they send young men off to war at, in their late teens for a reason mm. it's a time of like masculine ritual and rites of passage that's mm-hmm. what it is rites of passage yeah you know it's that age but it's also fundamental human stuff like what mystifies me more uh are people who like have absolutely no like curiosity in that way mm. Like, why are we here? What is this? Mm -hmm. What am I? Me
1: too. That's, that's always interesting. More interesting to me too. People who, um, and that's why I say like, I don't know if people, some people just have more of a propensity for this kind of questioning than others. Um, because I just, you know, there, there are certain people who just, I think they're like, no, I, I don't like, I just am not curious. I, I, yeah, I I don't know. It's
0: like, it's like, I think some people are just like, I have no idea. I'm just going to
1: have an idea or it's like, it is just, this is exactly how it happened. And
0: the universe is cruel. Like I sometimes feel like Werner Herzog's that way. He's like the universe is right. (laughs) It doesn't care. It's it's an unfeeling void of, (laughs) you know, you're just like, okay, he really, but that's, that's, I don't know. That's a heavy worldview, man.
1: I know. Maybe it's accurate too, but
0: (laughs) yeah, I guess maybe he's saying it's indifferent or I don't think it's like out to get you. No, I don't think it's like that. But
1: I, yeah, I don't think that's what he's saying either. Though I think it is more of like this kind of cruel indifference.
0: Yeah, it's up to us to supply. Like Stanley Kubrick has a great quote about that. It's like, and I'm going to botch it, but it's basically like we've got to supply the meaning. Right. It's like it's on us. Hmm. Um. So okay. So where are you now? You do yo. Know, what kind of yoga do you do?
1: Um, I do. I have my own sort of flow practice that I do, but, um, when I was last in Amsterdam, I was really, um, into an Ashtanga practice.
0: Yeah. So you are a ritual uh, routine person because that's but, the same sequence of poses. That's it. That's is. also rigorous. It's difficult.
1: It is. Yeah. And I like that. I like both of those things about it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, when I'm, when I'm doing a home practice, I don't, um, I don't, do that. Like I don't do a full Ashtanga, um, sequence. I just kind of, I do some sun salutations and kind of try to, to go through like all the, um, kind of main areas of the body, but
0: do some twists. Yeah, exactly. Do you like to practice alone? Um, can you do it with like, and find it like,
1: I find that it's that, uh, it, I like the experience more of going to a class. Me too. Because I like being able to really check out and just kind of feel like I can give myself over to this teacher to lead me through something. Yeah. I don't have to think, like, am I in this? Have I been in this long enough? Or, you know, should I do this now? Or maybe I can just stop now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you challenge yourself more when you're with the group. But yeah. I also think there's something to group energy. Yeah. And, like, you know, a lot of the, uh, I mean, almost every meditation. Book I've ever read at some point, or whatever all the writers i have ever read. At some point, they tell you, like, it's actually if you want to strengthen your practice, like, do it in a group. Yeah. Because there's that reinforcement, but there's also something to like the energy. Like, if you're sitting in a room full of people, I'm sure you've felt this, like, practicing when I mean, you're practicing yoga in a room with people and everybody's kind of trying to be still, and like, maybe the person next to you is having like a quieter, experience Mm -hmm. than you are and like you can kind of draw on that or something Mm -hmm. and then there's like all that like heat in the room too yeah which like you know it's It's palpable it feels good i know people who haven't done it are listening are like what but like part (laughs) of it but like you flush your system you know and it feels good to like i always say it's like wringing yourself out you know it feels really good
1: yeah yeah um and with with meditation i i like i would say i meditate like four times a week or something. And I use right now I'm using the headspace app. Yeah. But I think that he talks too much in that app.
0: I could say the same thing about a lot of yoga teachers. Like I get, and like, uh, I was going to finish Like I had a thought that I was beginning when I was telling you about starting to go to yoga. Um, but it's like, it's going to sound really like self-righteous or shitty, Mm -hmm. you know? But basically like, uh, as an extension of teachers talking too much, uh, I don't know. I don't even want to say it. It's so goofy, but like, I think like there's a period in my early, uh, earlier part of my life where like movement meditation, which is what I, what I needed. Right. I like being in motion. It's still meditation. Like yoga is meditation. If you make the breath primary. Right. In the United States especially, like a lot of these classes are more like calisthenics classes. Right. People are just there to like, you know, get a good body or whatever, like get a workout. Yeah. Which I guess is okay, but like it's not
1: You're missing something. Vital. Well it's like if they're playing
0: pop music. Right. It drives me up the fucking wall. Like I don't want to notice the music. Right. Like I'm kind of austere. Like I can be like a real snob about it. But if a teacher's just like yammering the whole time or there are a lot of like out of work actors who become yoga teachers in LA. And so it's like their time to shine. So it's like I don't want I'm not here for your one man show, dude. Just call the fucking poses. <laughs> oh man, I'm such a dick. That's a very LA thing to say. But um Anyway, I, I think like part of it is a function of maybe having done like I don't know, I was practicing a lot for like from like 23 to like 33, I went like six or seven days a week. Mm-hmm. We're, we're the same, like very, I like a ritual. Yeah. And so you do, I don't know how many classes that equals out to, but it's, uh,
1: it's a lot. Might be 10,000 hours. It might be. <laughs>
0: and I eventually got to the point where I also started to really like to just be completely still. And then I got married and had kids. Right. I can only go to yoga like once a week if I'm lucky. So like the only time I have is that cushion at like five in the morning. And so that's it now or, you know, for the most part, but, um, yeah. And I, I think too, like when you talk about teachers talking too much or playing the wrong music, you know, it just like, I'm there to like have a moment of peace and silence and, mm-hmm. uh, especially living in a city, like there's nothing better than like the very rare moments where I feel like it's totally silent, which usually only happens like pre-dawn.
1: I know. That's why I love the mornings.
0: Yeah. Just like a little taste of that. Like silence is so powerful if you can actually get it, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's hard to come by, especially in this day and age. Like there's always something pulling you away. Yeah. So do you find that it helps your writing? Like, do you, do you wake up and write and then practice or do you like ever wake up and like practice and then write?
1: That's, you know, that's an, an interesting thing because like I haven't, um, gotten the balance of that correct yet. So I used to write and then I would go, uh, practice, but, but I found that like, sometimes I do better writing if I just, if, um, if I can get up and I can kind of do whatever ritual it is that I need to do first and feel like that that I'm freed from that, and then I can then I can write, and that's kind of what I'm doing right now.
0: What do you, what do you mean ritual? Like,
1: like, um, so I think like, uh, having a kind of physical practice, like doing yoga or, um, meditating, like, is even though those are things that are like uh, hygiene, as you said, <laughs> they also feel like things that you that like it's like okay if I know I'm going to do this, sometimes I just want to go and I want to do that and feel like I've moved through that, and then I can. I can have that like kind of clear mind and, uh, and write.
0: I feel the same. I usually get up and exercise. Yeah. You know, like get it all, meditate. Maybe it's a way of procrastinating though.
1: That's what I've wondered before. So sometimes like, yeah, I can, there's some mornings where I get up and I'm like, okay, I just need to start writing. I need to stay in this like dream state and do that. Right. Um, but I think I prefer to do the others first. Okay. Yeah.
0: Wow. We talked a lot about yoga. We did. <laughs> to people listening. You're still with us? Are you yeah. still with us? <laughs> we both do yoga. <laughs> yeah. Um you don't have to become a vegetarian, you don't have to meditate or do yoga. It's not a commercial for these things. Whatever you want to do, just live your life, you know, but Uh where are you going now? You're in LA. What's the like what's the rest of your travels in the states going to look like?
1: Yeah, so after this I'm going up to San Francisco and I'm I'm reading at Green Apple there. Then I'm reading in Oakland.
0: By the way, this might air after you've already done all these things. Okay. So, uh,
1: you know, you don't have to put it on your calendar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So San Francisco, Oakland,
1: uh, then Portland, um, Seattle and New York.
0: No, no Alabama.
1: Um, no, you know, I might, I, my mom really wants me to do a reading in Alabama. (laughs)
0: Yeah. You've got to go home as a conquering hero. Yeah.
1: So maybe I'll do one there over Christmas.
0: Okay. Around then is that when you do you usually go home for Christmas? Or like, uh,
1: yeah, around around the holidays. Or does
0: your mom ever come out to like uh, Amsterdam? She
1: she loves coming to visit. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's got to be great. Yeah, maybe my one of my kids will expatriate. Yeah, then I'll have to go out and
1: you'll have stalk to stalk them. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, no, I, I I say that and like internally I'm kind of wincing. Like, don't go too far away. But,
1: right, I know.
0: Um, well, it's great to meet you. Yeah. You have a you big year here with on. two books. Congratulations. Thank you. Glad I caught you while you like uh, are briefly in the United States. Yeah. I want you to give long consideration to staying away, at least until <laughs> this presidency is over with. <laughs> Stay like insulated in <gasps> sane, you know, uh Europe and uh I wish you well.
1: Well thanks, Brad. It's been fun.
0: All right. That's Genevieve Hudson. Her story collection is called Pretend We Live Here. It's available from Future Tense Books. Her other book, her book of commentary, is called A Little in Love with Everyone. That's out from Fiction Advocate. Go get both of them. It's a package. Get both of them. You can find Genevieve on the internet at GenevieveHudsonWriter.com. She's also on Twitter. Her handle is at Jen Hudson. That's G-E-N Hudson. She's on Instagram. Oh, my God. Check it out. Social media. Genevieve Hudson. Go get her books. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thank you to Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you want to support this program, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to write to me, you have something to say? Letters at otherppl.com. Send me a letter. An, ele- an electronic letter. Letters at otherppl.com Don't forget about the Other People app. Go get that wherever you get your apps. Wherever you get your your applications. Now is I, uh... Really like Abe Lincoln. Can I just like Abe Lincoln? Is, am I allowed to like him? Can he be my safe crush? So I will be back next week. I will have another conversation for you. Come hell or high water. I've got some good ones in the pipeline. Queued up. Ready to go. Waiting for you. Are you on pins and needles? Can you handle the excitement? Is it too much for you?